In this series of career sessions, all of our guests hold doctorates in their chosen field, and we invite them to talk about their pathway from PhD candidate to present day. We ask them what they've learned, and we also ask them to give advice to people who might be thinking about a career in research when they've finished school or when they've finished their undergraduate degree. Welcome to Career Sessions with your hosts, Steph and Tamara, proudly sponsored by Inspiring South Australia. Today we're talking to Associate Professor Matthew Leach, who graduated with his PhD in the School of Nursing and Midwifery at the University of South Australia in 2005, following the completion of his thesis titled The Clinical Efficacy and Feasibility of Using Horse Chestnut Seed Extract in the Treatment of Venous Leg Ulceration. His program of research is underpinned by three pillars of health, the consumers, the provision of care and the impact of, and the impact of that care. He held the position of Senior Research Fellow at UniSA for many years, and in 2014 he was awarded a research fellowship at the Australian Research Centre for Complementary and Integrative Medicine, an honorary visiting fellow with the Faculty of Health at the University of Technology in Sydney. He is an accomplished author and speaker, and he is very passionate about scientific rigour in complementary medicine research. These days you'll find him at his new digs at Southern Cross University, Lismore, Uh, And welcome, Matthew. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Tamara. So um, just to set the scene a little, to put this all into context, what are you doing right now? So what's your current role? What does your everyday life look like right now? Apart from talking with you guys. Apart from from this, before this. (laughs) Um, So I've only been in my new position probably for about four months now. Um, So I had to move interstate, new university, brand new centre, $10 million centre, um, and was pretty much the first person there, and then the team's gradually built from that. So my, my primary role there is as de- Deputy Director of Education. Um, so part, in addition to my program of research, I also oversee the development of brand new programs, not just in naturopathic medicine, but also integrative medicine, lifestyle medicine, um, planetary health. So it's quite a broad remit. Um, and I guess the underlying philosophy of the centre is that as long as it has um, an alignment with naturopathic philosophy, then it, it's appropriate. So you spend a lot of time sitting at a desk, staring at a screen? I do. At the moment, a lot of Zoom. Yep. <laughs> so at the moment, you're actually in Adelaide. I am. So when they, uh, when they started closing the borders, um, we made the decision everyone would just go home um, for that time. So we don't know when the borders actually reopen. Um, so I'm just staying here in very cold Adelaide. Oh, this is a great much, way much to safer. start a job. You don't even on site. <laughs> <I know. laughs> yeah. From like 30 degrees down to like two degrees. Yeah. Yeah. So let's go back to the very beginning. Uh, so are you a first-generation university student in your family or did your parents go to university? Or? Uh, first generation, yep. Mm-hmm. And brothers and sisters, did they go to uni? No, I was the first one um, within the nuclear family. Um, and then, then interestingly, my mother followed suit probably about a decade after that. So, it was, so I led the way, I think. She, you led the way. So what, did, did you know what you wanted to do when you left high school or...? I kind of had two options. One was I was looking at um, teaching, or one was looking at um, in a health kind of area. And I, I lived in Wireless, it's a regional town, about 20,000 people, and they had a university there, and the only health option there was, was nursing. And so the, I'll, I'll just do that. I wanted to do a degree, I wanted to get into health, uh, so I'd studied that. When I graduated from, from that did, uh, into my internship, I started to realise there was something still missing from from what I wanted in, in my clinical practice. Um, at that time, I was talking to a, a colleague who was studying naturopathy and 
the philosophy of retinoid naturopathy kind of resonated with me around the ideas of holism, treating the underlying cause, um, using innate healing ability of the body and so forth. And then um, I went off and studied naturopathy on that. But then something again was missing from that, and that was what pretty what drew me to nursing. That was the scientific evidence base behind behind that. And so I thought my mission then was to look at um, building an evidence base for naturopathic medicine. Well, you really had a plan. <laughs> I did, but I didn't have come kind of. It wasn't foreseen though. It's kind yeah. of happened. Or no, was it like at age seven? You knew exactly. No, so I had these little <laughs> epiphanies had to go along. Yeah. Yep. Um, so did you go to university straight from school? I did. Yes, mm-hmm. straight away. Yep. I was, I was very keen to, to, to be at university because um, I wanted to. I saw myself quite probably more in a leadership role. I'd like to be in in the long term. Um, I thought university was kind of a pathway into that. And so. It was no slip of the pan or anything that got you into a nursing degree. It was very much a dis- decision that you made that you wanted to be in health, although I suppose you were limited by your your regional That's status. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. So your undergraduate degree was nursing. Yep. Did you? What did you do after you finished nursing? And into not not naturopathy. Did you do an honours degree? Did you do a master's degree? Where did you go next? So after naturopathy, um, as I mentioned before, I wanted to build the evidence base for NatMed. Um, and so at that time I realised if I wanted to to do that with some appropriate credentials and have some credibility in the field, I needed to um, build some research credentials mm-hmm. behind that. So I started um, my honours at the time, which was kind of the fast track into a PhD. I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do at that point in time. And that honours was really merging nursing and, mm-hmm. and natural medicine together. Um, and then I kind of got the taste for research and thought, I want to take this further. Yeah. Um, and at that time, they were offering scholarships. So when I did a, um, my PhD, and again, that was merging nursing and naturopathic medicine together. And they got a real taste for research and academia. And that's kind of I let furthered my path in that in that area. So was it straight after honours that you had realised that you wanted to do a PhD, or did you have a few years out? Or no, it's kind of like just back to back: school, nursing, naturopathy, honours. PhD. So there's no there was no gap. So how old were Month, you when you graduated? My PhD. PhD. Oh God, I don't know. That would have been mid twenties. Wow. I think I, I don't know. It's gone back a while. <laughs> <laughs> so you knew you were interested in research, and you knew the the field that you were interested in researching in. Did you know then what your topic was going to be for your PhD, or was that related to the the funding that you got? It's kind of, I think, around the time we finished our honours, they had the call out for, for PhDs and they said, you know, put forward a, a project idea that you'd like. And I originally thought of a, a, a different topic altogether. And interestingly, um, the research degree coordinator at the time tried to sway me away from that topic, saying, no, I don't think the methodology is right. I don't think the question's right. Because um, I was looking at doing a clinical trial mm-hmm. and the school said, we well, don't really have support for people doing clinical trials. Um, so we swear you maybe to do some qualitative research instead. Well, that's quite different yeah. from a clinical trial. <laughs> it was. And, and me being, I guess, a, a quant person, a numbers person, um, it was, didn't really align with my kind of underlying passion either. And so I kind of convinced, convinced the research degree coordinator that, no, I really want to do a clinical trial and it has to be in venous leg ulcers. It was originally going to be essential oils at that time, um, but then I changed my topic halfway through and looked at a, a herbal medicine. Halfway through your PhD? Yep. Okay, we're going to unpack that a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What made you change your your treatment? I think when I went into it originally, 
I went into it with a, uh, I guess, a nursing headset, a biomedicine headset. And I was like, how can I treat this like a drug? Just treat the symptom. Um, and that is try and um, reduce the um, microbial load of the wound. And hopefully that would then in turn improve wound healing. Um, but then I, at that time, I was conflicting with my, I guess, my naturopathic philosophy was that actually we need to treat the underlying cause. Mm -hmm. The underlying cause of venous leg ulceration is venous insufficiency. So I had to actually address the the venous system and not the wound directly itself. Mm -hmm. So that's why to align better, I guess, with my philosophy of, of health, um, I completely changed the intervention to do that. So what was the question that you wanted to answer with your PhD? It was originally just going to be a, a clinical trial, looking at the, the clinical effectiveness of horse chestnut seed extract for venous leg ulceration. And so you'd have like a control and a... Yeah, so the yeah. Act active group, a matching placebo, um, they had the intervention taken orally for, for 12 weeks in conjunction with wound wound management provided by the nursing staff in the mm -hmm. community. But as you know, there was a challenge in recruiting people for clinical trials. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> a major challenge. I didn't quite get the, the sample size that I needed, so I had a discussion with my um, supervisors and we thought, okay, we need to actually beef up the PhD. So maybe look at beyond effectiveness and look at a whole range of other things that look at maybe more feasibility mm -hmm. of this as an intervention. So it essentially became probably one of the first mixed methods research studies that I guess at the time was not really a methodology. Mm -hmm. So it started off with a, a clinical trial, then it became a survey of actually saying to consumers, medical practitioners, nurses, would you use it? Mm -hmm. Why wouldn't you use it? Why would you use it? What would just facilitate your uptake of it? So we're looking at kind of translation of the evidence. Um, and the other one's looking at cost benefit. So actually does that having the addition of this intervention actually have a cost benefit for patients and for the um, institution as well. So what did you get out of your, what, what did we all get out of your PhD? What did we all get? <laughs> um, I guess um, it's only addressed a major knowledge gap in the field. And I think for venous leg ulceration, it's one of the, um, one of the most chronic long-term health conditions, of skin conditions mm -hmm. um, internationally. And I guess with that, I mean, I've seen, I saw patients in the trial who'd had an active leg ulcer for 30, 40 years. It had never healed in that whole time. And these, these are not looked like, like, like small little tiny wounds. They're like, mm -hmm. you know, encompassing half the leg. Oh, yeah, leg. having a huge impact on their quality of life, I'm sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And so for these people, the, the mainstay of treatment was to have um, multi-layer bandaging. Mm -hmm. These were compression bandages as well. So in the middle of summer, having four layers of bandages on their legs, mm -hmm. and then that caused dryness, irritation, um, discomfort, um, the heat of the whole thing. And so compliance with that therapy was pretty low. Um, and so I provided, I guess, a, an option to maybe look at another alternative that might be used either in conjunction with it or instead of for people who actually couldn't tolerate that bandaging system. Mm -hmm. So venous leg ulcer is not the ulcer that you get from lying in bed for a long periods of time? No, that's more pressure ulceration. Pressure. So it's more so an underlying um, problem with the venous system. So it might be from prolonged standing, often associated, linked with varicose veins initially, um, so professions where you're standing up for long periods of time, pregnancy and so forth. Okay. So you looked at the whole, uh, the, a very broad scale project, looking at underlying factors, the yeah. symptoms, the um, feasibility of interventions, the economic value of interventions. Um, yeah. So you had a, a whole package to deliver at the end of your PhD. So Absolutely. certainly some value there. Would you say that? pivot halfway through your project to widen your scope was the most challenging part of your PhD? Uh, I guess it did It did push back my time frame a fair bit because um, I think at that time I was, thinking, I was, I was tracking really, really well, but the, the, the project itself wasn't resonating with me. And I mm -hmm. thought 
And I think with a PhD, there are times where you, you, you will hate it. Um, <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> as you know, there'll be times where you just want to just throw it away. It's just it's hard work. Um, and the thing, I guess, the message that I've always told myself and certainly my students is if you, if you want to stick with something, um, you have to be passionate about it. If not, and I guess that's the problem I challenge with um, projects that are given to students because mm-hmm. often it doesn't resonate with them in terms of an area of passion that is often looking at the, the end point and that being the parchment or the, the title mm-hmm. but actually not about the journey. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess my, my key message from that is that you have to be absolutely passionate about it because it will be those times that you feel fall to the ground where mm-hmm. you just want to give it up, you can't stand it anymore, and that passion will keep me motivated. So how long did it take you to, to complete your project? I think with that delay in change of project, about three and a half years. Wow, mm-hmm. that's great. Yeah, that's actually pretty good one. It was longer than that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so, and how how was the data collection, like we know recruitment is huge, um, mm-hmm. and did that ex- make the time any longer or did you kind of have a set time and you just, you just recruited within that time frame no matter how many you got? That I had to extend that a fair bit because mm-hmm. um, the numbers were quite slow. Um, and at that time, I had a lot of people who were gatekeeping mm-hmm. um, and preventing people accessing the trial. So in the hospitals? So we had a process where we had to, at that time, we had to get consent from the person's GP mm-hmm. or their specialist. Um, not so much now. That's not so much an issue about that time. The ethics were a bit dubious around the whole process. Yeah. weren't quite familiar with clinical trials. Yeah. Um, and we're being overly cautious. And so they said, I want you to have every single person that comes in with expression of interest, just have a GP sign off or a dermatologist sign off. Um, Just adds a layer of complication. It did. And I think the biggest barrier to uptake was GP or medico refusal. Mm -hmm. Um, Because they didn't take it seriously or they didn't have the time or investment? um, One, they didn't understand the treatment. Um, Two, there was definitely a bias against herbal medicine. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of them saying it was witchcraft. Still is. Um, and they're still, absolutely. Yeah. And a lot of it was that they, they believed from what they read that it, there was a safety risk. And the thing is, the horse chestnut seed is safe, the leaf isn't. And we were using the seed, but they were reading stuff about the leaf yeah. and saying they, they came in with preconceived course. ideas that absolutely. they weren't willing to shed. Yeah. Yeah. And so, as a PhD student, where you are, you're still a student, you're still um, early in your career. That's quite challenging being faced by people saying, no, no, this is not good enough. This is not a good trial. You know, you're not a good researcher by, by virtue of that. So it was challenging, I mean, but it, it makes you grow um, and it just highlights, I guess, the challenges of, of doing a clinical trial or any piece of research mm-hmm. or the PhD altogether. Yes, you just added laser complexity to yours by the topic area as well. So you're a challenging <laughs> PhD plus being a, a controversial area. area. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely, yep. So how did you keep on going then if you had coming up against these challenges and, and it feels like, having done an RCT myself, it feels like it's a daily, there's a different challenge every day. So how do you keep going? How did you keep going? I think I mean, and passion was definitely the one. I think the, the right that I had in terms of being able to choose my topic and stay with my chap- topic and even modify my topic, that, that was kind of what kept me going because mm-hmm. I, I had to take ownership then. I chose this topic, I need to see it through. Mm-hmm. Um, but also I think, you know, the supervisors were quite nurturing as well. And that, that's really important because I think there are times where you feel really low and think, you know, I'm a failure. This is not good enough. Um, but then you had, um, your supervisor playing with a reality check. Yes, often it's not, it's Research not about, is hard. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. And also realising that it's, 
the results aren't necessarily the, the end game for a PhD. It's about the process. Yeah. Yep. It's also um, so it's about a research training program, not about a Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> and you're not going to change the world with your one little project. <laughs> exactly. No matter how I do much... remember you saying that to me. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And how much you ignore your supervisor and think, no, I'm going to be that one. That yeah, I'm going to be the one that's going to change the world. <laughs> that's right. So you were able to pick your supervisors. Uh, no, so um, when I started, because there was no one else in the whole school who had any mm. clinical trial experience, there's one that had a little bit of experience, and by default, they had to be the pr principal supervisor. Mm. Um, and you then, really did set yourself up for problems, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> I did. So I kind of started at times doing mixed methods where mixed methods didn't exist yeah. into an institution where they didn't have any experience with doing clinical trials. Yeah. So it was a barrier. Yeah, in, in a, on guess, a topic you know, that people didn't accept. And <laughs> I know. I just, I just love those roadblocks the whole entire way. But, um, but I guess adding, adding to that, I also had supervisors, my co-supervisors changed every year. Oh. And so my first year, it was a person who was in a senior position. They were more qualitative. Again, they didn't have any clinical trial experience because most of the people in the school didn't have mm -hmm. um, RCT experience. Um, and then after the first year, she thought, I don't think it's a good alignment, my expertise <laughs> with your project. And so she handed me over to another person who had extensive expertise in clinical trials. And then he came in for the second year and then something happened. He had to leave the institution um, and didn't want to continue with his PhD candidates. And so I had to find someone else who had expertise around economic evaluation. Yeah. So, forth. so that was my <laughs> well, final year. That so. is actually uh, difficult. Another one, another challenge. Another challenge. Because your relationship with your supervisor is very is is a foundation of your whole experience, really. Absolutely. I mean, you don't really want to say it's make or break, but it can make all the difference. It can make all the difference. Oh, absolutely, yeah. because they're, they're, they're your guide throughout mm -hmm. the entire process. And they're almost they're reality check. Because there'll be times where you can often just go on a complete uh, divergent and get really excited about something and they'll draw you back. So actually, that's not important remember at this the point in time. Eyes on the prize. <laughs> absolutely, yeah. Based on your experience as a, as a student and 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 your role as a supervisor, how would you describe the life of a PhD student? Oh, that's an interesting one. I think um, I think every every journey is different. Um, I have been a research degree coordinator for about four years, um, and so I've seen the other side of it as well in terms of the administrator side. But also seeing different people's journeys and different experiences with different types of supervisor setups. Um, I think at the absolute key for accessible PhD, one is about the passion. Mm. Um, so be absolutely driven and, and actually all know what your end goal is as well, not just the PhD, but what do you want to do beyond the PhD mm -hmm. and how does it prepare you for that pathway? Um, and the other thing is, I think you can probably do this probably more so now than um, previously, is, is choose the right supervisors. Because mm -hmm. you'll be with them for the entire, that process, whether it be three, six, eight years. Um, and so don't be afraid. Do a bit of personality check. You know, are they a good alignment with my personality? Mm -hmm. Are they kind of aligned with my interests? Are they thinking beyond just a successful completion? Are they thinking about my career? Are they providing opportunities for me to either do some teaching or to be part of grants or be part of papers as well? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah. it's more than just that one product that you create, the, the PhD thesis. It's Absolutely. all of the experiences you get along the way. Yep. Yeah. Every good relationship, PhD supervisor relationship, should be actually a longer term relationship than just a longer a PhD. term, yeah, friendship and yeah, absolutely, yeah. mentor. Yeah. <laughs> so, how did you get to where you are now? Like, what was your path? My pathway. Um, so, I guess um, certainly, I think the thing about the PhD is it opens it opens doors. Um, sorry, it unlocks unlocks doors. <laughs> yeah. 
didn't necessarily open them. Um, but I think for me, the, the PhD provided, I guess, access to academia. Um, and academia provided, I guess, opportunities for um, developing pedagogy, um, experience in teaching, in research, um, and understanding administrative processes around education mm -hmm. and research. And then like, I think building on from that, um, research that provide opportunities then to access funding schemes, um, to attend conferences, to write papers, to build a track record mm -hmm. in the field. And then collectively, all those things, the, the education, the research, the engagement, then provide you with a pathway for moving forward. And I think those, all those elements there create the pathway to where I am now. So you stayed in the university system after you finished your PhD? I, I did practice nursing for about 13 years. Mm -hmm. I, I continued that for probably one or two years after my PhD, um, partly because I like the term having you know, the term doctor while you're a nurse. Doctor nurse. There was kind of a, a, an interesting terminology. But also there was, I guess, a level of respect amongst your peers mm -hmm. that um, you've taken it to the next level and you yeah. often challenge a lot of things in practice. Um, but I felt that in clinical practice, there was, again, there was something not quite there for me, mm. kind of another element for me was I think the research component was probably missing in clinical practice. Um, so that's why I got driven then to go into academia. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. So because a lot of um, academics don't actually have a clinical background, mm -hmm. even academics in health fields don't necessarily have clinical backgrounds. Has that made a difference for you in being an academic? I, th I think in terms of the education side of things, I think there's a, a level of respect from students that you've got a clinical experience. Mm -hmm. they, they they kind of believe, okay, you, you've been there, you've experienced that. We can take um, what you say as a bit more than something you've read in a paper. Yeah, um, you've actually lived that experience, and they, they kind of value that. But also, I think the the clinical experience also something you can then translate into research and look at the. So the biggest thing I think at the moment around research is not just doing research, but also translating that and implementing Absolutely, that into practice. Yeah. I think coming from a clinician's perspective, you can understand that translational aspect rather than just stopping at, okay, I published my paper, I'm moving on to the next project. Mm -hmm. It's about, okay, I published the paper, how to get those findings into practice and how I can start changing practice to improve patient outcomes. And so you're a bit of a machine when it comes to publishing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> did you publish out of your thesis or was your thesis a uh, by publication or, or? No, so at, at the time, um, <clears throat> there's no such thing as a PhD containing publications. Mm. I think there was probably one colleague who had just started that, probably one of the first one at the institution who'd yeah. done that. Um, and he experienced major challenges around, you know, this is not a PhD, what are you doing here? Yeah, um, if you haven't and, written 80,000 words on a single topic, is <laughs> exactly. it really a PhD? <laughs> and then trying to find examiners who actually supported that as yeah. well. Um, so at that time, I guess I had supervisors that were very traditionally focused and they were th thinking around, I'm just going to support you in creating a thesis, a traditional thesis containing chapters. Um, but I knew for me that a thesis itself is often just a glorified doorstop. You have know, <laughs> yeah, a very impressive one. <laughs> well, it's a, a, a fantastic piece of work. It's great to show your parents. But, <laughs> but very few people This is actually, what I've been doing for the past four years. <laughs> that's right. It's your first book, I guess. But, but most people don't actually read a thesis, unless you're maybe another PhD candidate wanting to look at a lot of detailed information. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it can just be trapped then behind in, in that binder just holding on a shelf. It's got that gold sparkly writing on it. <laughs> Three and a half years of your life summarised. Um, That's great when the TV crew come out and you pretend you're reading something because it would be impressive. <laughs> it's your thesis. <laughs> oh, I just, just happened to have this out. <laughs> That's right. It's my coffee table book. <laughs> um, but I think that in terms of <clears throat> it having an impact, I had to then translate that into stuff that the public would see. Mm. 
And so at that time, I was, I was really driven to, to getting into academia. And so I knew that to be an academic, academic I had to have a track record. Mm-hmm. And part of that track record was having publications. Um, and my supervisor didn't really push me in terms of, let's get some publications out there. It's pretty much just focus on your thesis and get that done. So I, in, in my own time, created, so I did the thesis, the normal thesis, but also added to that, creating five publications simultaneously <laughs> yep. at the same time yep. to say, I want a track record when I finish this. Um, and I managed, managed to get them all done and even, I think, finished my last paper, I think about 10 years after my PhD. Mm. Um, so it doesn't matter even if it's on the, during your PhD or just after your PhD, but even way after your PhD. That's encouraging. Um, it's still valuable data. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So did you enjoy your experience, your PhD experience? Yes and no. <laughs> um, I think I think the thing about the PhD, which you'd never, ever have again, is the opportunity to spend that entire period of time, that three to four years, focusing on one project that you absolutely You just love. wallow. Absolutely. You can't do that <clears throat> out in the real no. world. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's right. And I think the thing that I really miss is the time where you actually, you, you know all the literature. You know every single paper that's been published in that mm. field and you are the expert in that field. Yeah. Um, but then as you graduate... If you're doing more and more pieces of research, write more and more papers, you can't look at those in the same level of detail you did in the PhD. Mm-hmm. So I do miss that that level of immersion you get from that. You have to do another PhD. <laughs> Is the job you have now the job that you thought you would have when you were doing your PhD? Oh, well, interesting. When, when, when I first went into academia, they did have a naturopathic program at the university, only for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, at UniSA? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And at that time, that's kind of I thought. I saw there's opportunity then to potentially grow in that particular area, build a, a really big program, and then become a leader in that particular field. But then that kind of program then dissolved for a number of reasons, and then I was kind of stuck into doing other nursing, allied health kind of pieces of, um, of education and research. Um, and so I, I never thought there would ever because there was a time as well ha- happening over years and years and years that many of the programs that were available in, in universities were gradually being dissolved as well mm. and moving back to the private sector. So for me, I, I, I never saw there'd be a, uh, a role for me, a senior position in naturopathic medicine ever in academia. Mm. Um, so th- when this opened up um, last year, I was like, wow, this is this is a perfect opportunity. Is this, mm. is this like a turning point for academia? Do you think that this is now your field is taking more seriously? Is I don't know if it's taken seriously yet. Mm. Um, I guess that's part of our role, I, I guess, as leaders in the field is to, to, to shift that. Yeah. Um, I guess certainly for me when I um, had that epiphany around I want to build the evidence-based practice, so the evidence-based for naturopathic medicine, um, my, that mission still stands. Yeah. Uh, and, and, but, and this is the way to do it in academia yeah. where people respect the answers you come up with. Um, yeah. And you're yeah. seen as being much more objective and critical mm. rather than just being... Um, conformist mm-hmm. um and so there was a, a level of respect being i guess in that position where you are but also being able to shape education in the field so i guess the directive I've, I'm, ha- I'm putting into my programs is it has to have a very strong element around evidence-based practice around critical thinking reflective thinking clinical reasoning not just doing but actually thinking and acting appropriately mm-hmm. so if you weren't if you hadn't have, uh, hadn't done your phd what do you think you'd be doing um, I guess, I mean, if the PhD, I think, was, was the pivot point for me to get into academia. Um, I mean, I guess there are other, other ways to get into academia. I mean, I probably would have done clinical practice a bit longer, um, maybe not being as happy. 
uh, maybe have regretted mm. um, regretted that. Um, I could have got into academia, but the thing with, that, with academia is that unless you have a PhD, you can't climb the ladder. Yeah. You're often mm. stuck at a level A position yeah. um, for that. So you maybe couldn't be where you are today without Absolutely. It. So mm. I'd be either stuck in clinical practice, which is not a bad thing, I think, um, um, but didn't quite meet my needs, um, or start, uh, at a, maybe a lower level in, in academia as mm. well. So again, wouldn't have been completely satisfied in terms of having that leadership role. And the leadership role is going to open up those opportunities for you to actually have an impact and yep. and collect the evidence, but more than that, put it out there, make sure people are hearing it, that it makes a difference. Absolutely, yep. Um, so what is a PhD to you? A PhD, I think the thing I always tell um, pretty much students and, um, and new applicants is it's, Think of it as a, a research training program. Don't think of it as as a degree or an award. Um, I think um, people often think of the actual project itself as being the PhD. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> it's about the whole the whole entire journey. Is I mean, obviously the thesis is, is a critical part of that because that's what you actually get examined on. But that what what experiences can you capture during that exp- um, that that journey? So it's about you know, how do, how do I write critically mm. and, and academically that um, will be accepted by my peers internationally? How do I problem solve? Um, how do I become a critical thinker? Um, how do I work collaboratively? So with my supervisors and other people, how do I act ethically? Um, how can I look at all information I'm exposed to, not just within an academic or research sense, but also way beyond um academia, but also in the real world, how can I think critically and act critically around things that I do? So your field is emerging. Mm -hmm. um, And how do you think the universities could go about better promoting what it is that you do um, in your field to help people understand that the purpose, the purpose of your research and the value of it? (laughs) I mean, like I think you mentioned at the start, my area of research is in health services research. And that was probably that's quite deliberate. I've used that terminology because um, a lot of my research is is principally in complementary medicine, naturopathic medicine. But because there is, I guess, a, th- those names are tainted in some respect. There are biases mm. associated with that. I had to make the decision to say, okay, what is in a more appropriate terminology that captures my piece, my area of research, my focus of education? That's probably more accepted. Not quite so weighed down with preconceptions. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So I've kind of pitched myself in that area, and that's how, certainly when I apply for the position, I pitch myself in that particular space. Because um, I guess that's, you kind of push those biases aside. I come in with, a, I guess, forget those preconceptions. This is my, my vision, my, my scope of practice. And then through that avenues of health service research, through evidence-based practice, then driving change in company medicine and naturopathic medicine as well. So it's almost like a, Acting in stealth, really, until <laughs> yeah. you've created that that solid evidence base. So, okay, actually, the truth. Like out. surprise, guys, yeah. we're we're actually talking about this field that you guys wouldn't accept. Yeah, ninja yeah. cam. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, if you're talking to people who are about to finish their degree, uh, what's and they're contemplating a PhD, is it, is now a good time to be doing a PhD? Do you think, or what advice do you give to an to someone who's to someone who's listening who you don't necessarily know personally? Um, well, it's a good thing about a PhD is that it's not a direct entry program. And so you've got to get steps to get there. Mm-hmm. So the, the thing is about 
think about where you'd, you'd like to be in the short term. So what is it you're really, really passionate about? You might be about, like myself, you might be really, really passionate about health, but not have a particular area of health that you're passionate about. It might be about engineering or computing. Whatever it is, you know, allow that passion to resonate. You know, embrace that passion. And then once you've had a chance to experience in that undergraduate um, platform, then you can make decisions around where you want to go from there. So you might think, actually, I don't think research is for me. Um, and so it might not be an appropriate pathway for you. But then you might think, okay, actually, research is for me. And the thing about the PhD, you don't have to necessarily be in a particular area of your expertise. So I could have done a PhD in in medicine or engineering, whatever it might be, because it's looking at those transferable skills of a PhD, not so necessarily the content aspect. So you have people, I know people who have worked in health moving over to into environmental science um, or genetics. Mm. And so I think, you know, don't feel yourself locked in. You know, live, live, live for now in the moment and into something you're really, really passionate about yeah. and then make the decision as, as those epiphanies happen. And uh, what about school students who might, uh, they're either trying to think about what they're going to do for the rest of their lives because there's that pressure to do so. And, of course, making that decision at 17, which is the best time to be doing it. Yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> but also maybe those students who are heading into year 11 that need to think about subject choices and, and with that additional pressure, mm-hmm. what do you say to them from based on your experience? I suppose much a different, I guess, what career counselors often say is that, you know, if you're thinking about going to university, Think of what type of degree you're thinking about generally. Um, you might not actually know. I mean, people, we know people kind of will change careers. Most people change careers, change degrees um, in their life. But at that at that current point in time, what is it that you really, really would like to pursue? Uh, if it is nursing, then think about what are my prerequisites to get into that degree? Most degrees don't have prerequisites anymore. They've mm-hmm. often just dropped off of the system. And you can pick them up in first year if you need. Absolutely. But yep. think about what are those prerequisites that I need to actually go in there and we'll have, I guess make that transition into university a bit easier Mm. Um, but don't necessarily think okay I need to do these things now because I'm thinking of 10 years down the track think of what you need in the immediate short term and then while you're doing your degree think about what are my next steps yeah because opportunities will arise new information will come it's not a decision for it doesn't have to be a decision for the rest of your life Mm. absolutely not and there's very few people that can actually are lucky enough to know and and make that decision and, and that is the right decision for the rest of their lives because I think I, I think it probably not until I was probably mid, mid to late twenties that I realised what I wanted to do, mm-hmm. and so you know at, at 18, 17, 18, you don't know what you want to do. Mm-hmm. And you think I'd like to be working in this area, but until you're actually living in, and working in that area, you don't really know if it's right for you. Yeah, I was mid thirties, so there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I had a very long gap year. Thinking about the myths around PhDs and maybe a little bit of the myths around academia, mm-hmm. um, is there anything that uh, you, you think people believe that is incorrect about PhDs or academia that you would like to set the record straight on? <laughs> there was one thing that my supervisors, the, the research degree coordinators, all the professors um, and everyone in the school would always keep drumming into you. You're doing a PhD. The doors will open once you finish <laughs> that PhD. I heard that day in, day out. And it got to the point where you started to believe it. Mm. You think, okay, once I get my graduation, once I've finished that, I've got my parchment, all these opportunities will arise. They're going to line up to They will. Me. I'll be headhunted. <laughs> and it didn't happen. Mm. So there's part, of it, because there's part of it was they, they led you to believe that, but also maybe I wanted to believe it. Mm. But I think, you no, know, on reflection, I think the, the reality is I think the PhD unlocks doors, um, but it's through those additional experiences you gain it gives you the strength to push the doors open. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's just it's a step into 
um, future opportunities. Excellent. Okay, well, thank you very much for your time. I'm giving your time today, Matthew. Very generous. Um, I think it's really important to hear about these stories from people who are in the field about the realities of your yeah. PhD life and your and academic life. Understanding that we don't all sit in a little ivory tower with our hands tooth coats, <laughs> <laughs> dusting ourselves off <laughs> with our thesis. Yeah. <laughs> so was there anything else that you wanted to add or any questions that we didn't ask? No, that was fantastic. Thank you. Lovely. Thank you very much. Thank you. The very last thing that we should end with is a huge thank you to all of the people who came and gave their time to be interviewed for this um, podcast series. It's, very generous. It was very generous of them and it was so fascinating. And uh, after every interview, I felt so inspired <laughs> to be a researcher and, and to use my PhD. So it was a very eye-opening experience and a, um, a, a really interesting experience. Yes, and we're really very grateful to yeah. every single one of them. But we're also especially grateful to Dr. Sharon Pittman for yeah, telling who us, gave us the, about the, grant. <laughs> the inside story about the grant. Yes. yes, she gave us the inside story about the grant that we applied for and we got, which supported um, the production of this podcast. So thank you to Inspiring South Australia and to Sharon Uh, for your very generous um, support of our podcast. Thanks for listening to Career Sessions with Dr. Stephanie Champion and Dr. Tamara Agnew. If you like the show and want to know more, check out www.careersessions.com where you can send us your suggestions for future series and subscribe so you know when a new episode is posted. If you love it, tell all your friends and please leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks to our sponsor, Inspiring South Australia, for their generous support, and to our producer, Rory, at Podbooth. Join us next time when we talk careers with another leader in the field.